Thursday, October 5th, 2017. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight, we air a discussion on the evolution of the solar hero in mythology from the Sumerian Gilgamesh, who was the model for the Phoenician Melkart, who in turn inspired the Greek Hercules. Gilgamesh is a four thousand-year-old epic adventure story which circulated throughout the whole Middle East with copies found among the Hittites and the Canaanites. And even as Ishtar and Tammuz were translated into Astarte and Baal and subsequently became Aphrodite and Adonis, Gilgamesh, like Hercules, slays a lion, a bull, a giant, and a many-headed monster, his victories and Hercules' labors are seen as representing the sun's yearly progress through the signs of the zodiac. So, tune in and we'll go back to the days of myth and legend and make our way through the circle of the beasts, as the zodiac was originally called. Now, the solar hero myth cycle, is probably one of the most important mythical allegories in our esoteric tradition. The solar hero and his exploits through the signs of the zodiac represent the journey of the human soul through its continuing incarnations. The signs of the zodiac, especially those represented by animals, provide a key to interpreting this very ancient system of personal human history, both past and future. The 12 signs of the zodiac are like the 12 hours of a vast clock in the heavens, a time machine that gives us a window to view our destiny. This very ancient form of natal astrology was originally intended for kings alone, and kings in those ancient times were all thought to be related to gods. But by the first century of the common era, Hermes Trismegistus and Jesus the Nazarene revealed that all men and women are divinely ensouled. And so, this ancient solar hero mystery could be applied to those gifted with the mind, according to Hermes, or as Jesus put it, in my father's house, there are many mentions. And Jesus was also something of an elitist, although he didn't uh, he didn't openly say that. But he was something of an elitist because he told, regarding the, 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 these these kind of mysteries, he told his disciples, "Don't cast your pearls before swine." <laughs> uh, one of the keys to unlock this mystery are the four cherubs that are so familiar to the Western tradition: the lion, Leo the bull, Taurus, the man, Aquarius, and the eagle, representing Scorpio. They represent the four fixed signs of the zodiac, and they form a perfect equivalent cross if you place them on the zodiacal wheel. And we hold that the zodiac, as we know it, began with Taurus the bull at vernal equinox 22,000 years ago long before the Great Flood. Our astrology and mythology, both pagan, Hellenic, and biblical, dates from the Second Taurian Age, which began around 4000 B.C., and continued until 1800 B.C. 
and lingered on in tradition until 332 B.C. when Alexander the Great, full of Melkart, and Melkart, of course, was the Phoenician Hercules, at Phoenician Tyre, and formally ushered in the age of Ares. This is why Ptolemy, who defined uh, our astrology, uh, started in zero degrees Ares. So, the earliest written account of the solar hero is Gilgamesh, which was originally set forth in five separate stories back in ancient Sumer. Now, the subsequent Babylonian civilization combined these five tales into one epic adventure story, which we will summarize in a short synopsis. The epic prelude offers a general introduction to Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk, who was two-thirds god and one-third man. He built magnificent ziggurats or temple towers, surrounded his city with high walls, and laid out his orchards and fields. He was physically beautiful, immensely strong, and very wise. Although Gilgamesh was godlike in body and mind, he began his kingship as a cruel despot. He lorded over his subjects, raping any woman who struck his fancy, whether she was the wife of one of his warriors or not, or the daughter of a nobleman. He accomplished his building projects with forced labor, and his exhausted subjects groaned under his oppression. The gods heard his subjects' pleas and decided to keep Gilgamesh in check by creating a wild man named Enkaidu who was as magnificent as Gilgamesh. Enkaidu became Gilgamesh's great friend, and Gilgamesh's heart was shattered when Enkaidu died of an illness inflicted by the gods. Gilgamesh then traveled to the edge of the world and learned about the days before the deluge and other secrets of the gods, and he recorded them on stone tablets. Now, the epic begins with Enkaidu. He lives with the animals, suckling at their breasts, grazing in their meadows, and drinking at their water, watering holes. A hunter discovers him and sends a temple prostitute into the wilderness to tame him. At that time, people considered women and sex calming forces that could, be, could domesticate wild men like Enkaidu and bring them into the civilized world. And when Enkaidu sleeps with a woman, the animals reject him since he is no longer one of them. Now he's part of the human world. And then the harlot teaches him everything he needs to know to be a man. Enkaidu is outraged by what he hears about Gilgamesh's excesses. And so he travels to Uruk to challenge him. And when he arrives, Gilgamesh is about to force his way into a bride's wedding chamber. Enkaidu steps into the doorway blocks his passage. The two men wrestle fiercely for a long time, and Gilgamesh finally prevails. And after that, they become friends and set about looking for an adventure to share. Now, Gilgamesh and Enkaidu decide to steal trees from a distant cedar forest forbidden to mortals. A terrifying demon named Humbaba, the devoted servant of Enlil, the god of the earth, wind and air guards it. The two heroes make the perilous journey to the forest, and standing side by side, they fight with the monster, with the assistance from Shamash, the sun god. Uh, the two heroes make a perilous journey in the forest, and, and, and they, they, they cut down the forbidden trees, fashion the tallest into an enormous gate, 
make the rest into a raft, and float it back to Haruk. And upon their return, Ishtar, the goddess of love, is overcome with lust for Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh spurns her. As she's enraged, and the goddess asks her father, Anu, the god of the sky, to send the bull of heaven to punish them. The bull comes down from the sky, bringing with him seven years of famine. Gilgamesh and Enkaidu wrestle with the bull, and they kill it. And, you know, this is a prelude to Mithra, of course. The gods uh, meet in council and agree that one of the two friends must be punished for their transgression. And they decide Enkaidu is going to die. And he takes ill, and he suffers immensely, and shares his visions of the underworld with Gilgamesh. When he finally dies, Gilgamesh is heartbroken. Gilgamesh can't stop grieving for Enkaidu, and he can't stop brooding about the prospect of his own death. And exchanging his kingly garments for animal skins as a way of mourning Enkaidu, he sets off into the wilderness, determined to find Utn Pishtim, the Mesopotamian Noah. After the flood, the gods had granted Uptanpishtu eternal life. And Gilgamesh hopes that Uptanpishtu can tell him how he might avoid death also. And Gilgamesh's journey takes him to the twin-peaked mountain called Mashu, where the sun sets into one side of the mountain at night and rises out of the other side of the mountain in the morning. And um, we might mention that in those days the uh, uh, the underworld was the overworld because all of the sun, the sun, and all the stars and planets they they set, you know, and 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 they they went underground from they're looking at the horizon, they went they they went down into the underground. Putin Apishtim lives beyond the mountain. But the two scorpion monsters that guard the entrance refuse to allow Gilgamesh into the tunnel that passes through it. Gilgamesh pleads with them, and they, re- and they relent. After a harrowing passage through the darkness, Gilgamesh emerges into a beautiful garden by the sea, and there he meets Saduri, a veiled tavern keeper, and tells her about his quest. And she warns him that seeking immortality is futile and that he should be satisfied with the pleasures of this world. However, when she can't turn him away from his purpose, she directs Urshanabi, the ferryman. Now, if this sounds like uh, like uh, uh, Charon and the River Styx and, and uh, in the Greek underworld, well, you, can, you better believe it was uh, the Greek myths uh, and hold a lot to Gilgamesh. Not just, not just Hercules, but a number of the Greek people. Urshanabi the ferryman takes Gilgamesh on the boat, a boat journey across the sea and through the waters of death to Utnapishtim. And Utnapishtim tells Gilgamesh the story of the flood. Now the gods met in council and decided to destroy humankind. Ea, the god of wisdom, warned Utnapishtim about the gods' plans and told him how to fashion a gigantic boat in which his family and the seed of every living creature might escape. And by the way, this original ark was in the form of a cube, and and, and, uh, it eventually became a constellation. Uh, When the waters finally receded, the gods regretted what they had done and agreed that they would never try to destroy humankind again. Utnapishtim was rewarded with eternal life. Men would die, but humankind would continue. 
When Gilgamesh insists that he be allowed to live forever, Utnapishtim gives him a test. If you think you can stay alive for eternity, he says, surely you can stay awake for a week. And Gilgamesh tries but immediately fails. And so Utnapishtim orders him to clean himself and put on his royal garments again and return to Uruk where he belongs. Just as Gilgamesh is departing, however, Utnapishtim's wife can, convinces him to tell Gilgamesh about a, a miraculous plant that restores youth. Gilgamesh finds the plant, has to do a little pearl diving to find it, and takes it with him, planning to share it with the elders of, of Uruk. But a snake steals the plant one night, while they are camping, while he's bathing in fresh water. And as the serpent slithers away, it sheds its skin and becomes young again. When Gilgamesh returns to Uruk, he is empty-handed but reconciled at last to his mortality. He knows that he can't live forever, but that humankind will. Now he sees that the city he had repudiated in his grief and terror is magnificent, enduring the achievement, the closest thing to immortality uh, to which a mortal can aspire. And actually, we should add that, that when he died, he became, like Osiris, he became the lord of the dead. Michael, let's, uh, let's, just, let's discuss this a little bit, uh, you know, some of the... Uh, uh, some of the aspects of, of this that that relate to, uh, you know, that that relate to the labors of Hercules, or or to or essentially to Melkart. In one of the in in one of the uh, symbolic breakdown that I read by John David Ebert, and I have a I have a um, abbreviated version of that that I can read, and we'll give John David Ebert credit for it. He was, by the way, Ebert uh, was the editor of. Uh, for the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and he has a magazine called Mythic Passages, a magazine of imagination, which 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 is also on the on the internet, and I and I highly recommend it. Anyway, he said in breaking this whole thing down that that uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu uh, represented the constellation Gemini. Uh, are you are you familiar with that? I am a little bit. I I did ha- I did read that article. Uh, myself in preparation, but so that that is a theory I'm familiar with. Yeah, well, one of the things uh, the, about that we should we should mention is that Gilgamesh's mother, Ninsun, who was a minor goddess, his mother really really uh, really liked uh, and 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 Kaidu and, and and thought he would be a good influence on on Gilgamesh, and so she adopted him. She formally adopted him as, as as her son, which made him essentially Gilgamesh's brother. And in doing this, this course would be would certainly be the justification for considering Gilgamesh and Enkidu to to be related to the son of Gemini. Now, consequently, uh, if we're going to trace the if we're going to start tracing this, uh, uh, you know, Gilgamesh through the zodiac, when when she finally, I think that the time when she finally adopts him. In the story, if we're going to plot the story out, at the time that, when the time when when uh, uh decides to adopt, to officially adopt Enkidu uh, would be would indicate that that uh, that Gilgamesh is is in the in the sign of Gemini. I think that'd be reasonable, and then we can continue on. Um, what do you think? Uh, I would agree. Um, I completely agree with that. It also fits when 
uh, she's the one who prophesized that Gilgamesh would love Enkidu as a wife. Yeah. I've got, uh, you know, as I said, I, I've got, I kind of abbreviated uh, uh, John John Ebert's uh, uh, article here, so it wouldn't, you know, cut cutting out some of the some of the, uh, you know, the, the more I won't say more technical. Let's just say, you know, it it it, it can be abbreviated. Uh, I could read some of it, but uh, you know, actually, seeing as how you're on. Uh, we could just uh, sort of sort of discuss the uh, the points. What do you think uh, Humbaba represents? What what uh, the the monster well, that guards the forest? So I I kind of uh, lean towards Maria Mateus's take on Humbaba. Um, she linked Humbaba to a vegetation god that is also a god of um, snakes, which is really interesting in a storm god. And mm-hmm. in Slambaba, uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu are killing the fertility, which is part of why Gilgamesh doesn't have a child. Um, and it's it's very similar to our seasonal ceremonies whenever Moat kills Baal. Yeah, the, uh, that makes pretty good sense. I think uh, uh, also in that, I'm fascinated with the idea, too, that, that the cedar the cedar forest uh, that cedar forest, of course, we know it, it. It's in Lebanon, and we know it. It has a lot to do with the Canaanite mythology. And apparently, that cedar forest in in those days was much more extensive. And apparently, you know, it, it apparently it covered uh, a lot of Syria and and also into the upper reaches of the Tigris uh, and Euphrates. In a way, it kind of it kind of reminds me of the European, you know, the European forest, what we call the forest of fear. As uh, you remember, uh, in in Europe, that oak forest, that oak forest in Europe, which is primarily oak forest, it went all the way from, it went all the way from Poland, uh, all the way uh, across uh, the Channel through England and all the way into Ireland, uh, originally. And you know, it, it, and and today there's hardly anything left of it, and the reason being that uh, the British needed all those trees for one thing. They need all those oak trees uh, for their, you know, their uh, wooden ships and iron men, you know. And so uh, that for that that original oak forest in Europe was all cut down for you know for wooden and house lumber, and the same thing I think probably uh, applies to. Uh, uh, you know, to the cedar forest, that big cedar forest, and in, in, uh, that went all the way from Lebanon to, uh, literally, from Lebanon all the way to, uh, to Iran, probably uh, extended. And and I can see why why Humbaba was the guardian of the forest because that cedar was very valuable. They didn't have any any timber down in Babylon. They they uh, they had uh, you know they they made all their bricks. Uh, you know, they 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 got straw. They had straw to, to reinforce the bricks, uh, but uh, but uh, they they didn't have any 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 timber. So uh, that was a valuable commodity, and and Humbaba was the guardian, and uh, that's what they originally you know uh, uh, what what Gilgamesh went up there to do was to was to take over the forest and 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 go into the lumbering business, which they did. What I'd like to do, and and I haven't done it yet. I did I did get 
uh, a circle of the zodiac and, and, and put the fixed signs, the cross of the fixed signs across. What I'd like to do is is to take the Gilgamesh legend and go right through it and diagram it right on the circle of the zodiac so we could compare each sign. And as I said, John Ebert has done this in this article. He's gone, he have a hand diagram, he, he, he doesn't actually diagram it, but what he's done is he's gone through this article and he's he's pretty much, uh, you know, pegged sign for sign. Uh, let's see, Gilgamesh's solar journey through the 12 signs of the sun's annual passage through the year. We are moving toward the ecliptic from Taurus to Gemini to Cancer to Leo. Remember, though, that this was uh, with regard to the precession of the equinoxes. The progression moves back the other way. In fact, from the age of Gemini to Taurus, and from the age of Taurus, uh, 4,000-2,000 B.C., uh, to the age of Aries, known to the Mesopotamians, however, as the day laborer. Now, this is one thing that Ebert says. He says he couldn't find Aries in the uh, Gilgamesh story, which is, which is understandable, because uh, they were very much in the age of Taurus when they did this thing. They consequently, uh, they wouldn't be concerned so much in getting into Aries. So I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in real quick. And um, and as you Hebert, I'll I'll work with um, Maria Mateus some. Her argument is that you find Ares in Inkadu um, being domesticated and entering the city because the day laborer uh, was representative of the shepherds and all the hired help that would come into the city from the outside. So Inkadu yeah. coming into existence is Ares. Well, that works, yeah. In the Garden of Jewels, precious stones, at the point along the ecliptic between Scorpio and Sagittarius, there's an opening to the Milky Way. And so it's possible that this tunnel leads them down to the celestial underworld where Gilgamesh will will find this very river that will take him to the domain of Hopishtim where here he leaves behind the constellations of the northern hemisphere, for, as the text says, he took the path of the sun god, meaning that he followed the ecliptic as it led him down into the southern celestial hemisphere. Now, this is a point I want to bring two things up. We know that the ancients believed... And here again, this is another opposition on the on the zodiacal wheel, that that cancer was the gate of men. That was the gate that that you came down when you came back down, or came back up, because and, and, and the underworld, you know, eventually became the overworld, and the two were were virtually interchangeable. When you when you came back down or came back up, you went through the gate of cancer, the gate of men, and and then you were. If it was your first time around, you, you, you probably were born in Leo, if it was your first time around the wheel. But uh, if, you, if, you came back, if you came back up through cancer, you know, as I said, then, then, you, then, then you would circle around, and it was the next, if it was your next time, you'd circle around and you'd probably come up through Gemini. The gate of the gods, the god that you went out, was all the way around on the other side of the zodiac, and that was Capricorn. And uh, so we, in a way, we have to kind of plot this thing. We have to plot this using the the equivalent cross of the fixed of the fixed signs and the gate of the gods and the gate of men. That's kind of the key to uh, you know to defining the circle of the beasts, so to speak. 
Now, the Milky Way, you know, was the river of souls. And I think we should explain at this point, uh, we should explain this overworld, underworld thing, because I, I'm sure that there are there are listeners who, we've discussed it before, but I'm sure there are listeners that don't understand quite what we're talking about here. Yeah, do you remember that the, the, the planets were way back in Sumerian times, the planets were considered evil. They were bad. Evil ones, sores of ills, born in the bowels of the hills, you know. And and uh, they, they, were the, they were called the Moschim. And the reason was is that they they came up if you if you were look at the horizon and you were you were a stargazing shaman in those days and you looked at the horizon, you saw these these wanderers come up uh, over the horizon, and and they didn't uh, they, they didn't like the stars they 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 moved around where the stars were were more or less fixed, and these uh, these planets actually shifted around. And uh, this is why they were referred to as the disturbers of heaven. And they came up from the underworld. And this is what they did. The, the whole idea of the underworld was that, that, that the stars, all, all the heavens, went down at night. They were, they were down below the horizon in the underworld. And, and so and there was no difference in a, in a lot of ways between the underworld and the, and the overworld. One labor, the last labor of Hercules... Graves says it's the last labor. Other people say that, that this happens in the 11th labor instead of the 12th. Hercules drags the the guard dog of hell, uh, Cerebrus, he drags him out into the sunlight, drags him up. And, and uh, in other words, from, from that point on, uh, the, the underworld is the overworld. This concept has caused a lot of confusion in people trying to trying to understand uh, mythology. They keep uh, they, they they aren't aware that uh, of, the, of the fact the underworld is the overworld. Uh, do you want to give some thoughts on that? Well, that that's something that you've you've said before, and um, we've we've discussed it a fair amount. But it's, it's something that's really interesting. Can can you go into a little bit more detail on it for us? Because I know that with um, with Frater Heracles, we we've discussed that, and it fascinates us, but we don't quite understand how that change happened. Well, you know, I think the the, the influence we get the most in, in our in our tradition from the Hellenic, you, you know, as I say, you just finished that course in Hellenic astrology, and I imagine that there's uh, that in that and the, you ran into a lot of Orphic influence in in, uh, in Hellenic astrology, and the Orphics had a lot of their mythology uh, of the underworld and the overworld was almost interchangeable. They would, they would, uh, some of those, those, those funerary amulets that they would have seemed to be directed toward the underworld. And then some of them seemed to be directed toward the overworld. And the two are almost, you know, as I say, they're almost interchangeable. If you take uh, Robert Graves to try to synthesize the whole thing in a, in a poem that he wrote called Instructions to the Orphic Adept. And and uh, you can't, as you read that poem, you you uh, you can't quite you can't quite tell whether he wants underworld or overworld uh, interpretation. You know, he's he's got both. The soul rising up, uh, you know, or, or or going down, whether way you want to put it, says, "I am a child of earth and of sky also." And you get know, all this after death symbolism in the heavens. And, and uh, then you find the same symbolism uh, in, in the underworld. 
Now, Gilgamesh finds the Babylonian Noah, who uh, who did attain immortality, but he has to go into the underworld to do it. Finally, you know, he he gets at least he gets it out of Noah's wife. He doesn't get it from Noah, but he gets it out of her, out of his wife to to go somewhere near Dilmun in the Persian Gulf and, and go pearl diving for this plant. Now, it's 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 been pointed out. I I, I think uh, Ebert pointed it out. Someone pointed out that uh, the Gilgamesh dives for this plant, this 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 plant of immortality which grows underwater. He dives for it in exactly the same manner that the uh, the pearl divers down in, in Dillman, and they still do, by the way. Basically, they, they, use a, they use a rock as an anchor, and they just let the rock pull them down. I hope, and hopefully they hyperventilate <laughs> before they do this. Uh, and they let the rock pull them down, you know, to the bottom, which could be, you know, 100, 100 feet or more. And then they, they, they grab, you know, get the oysters, grab the pearls and bring them up. Uh, and of course, uh, they did the same damn thing in the South Pacific, exactly. And and uh, and it's very dangerous. And and you know, they they uh, a lot of the a lot of them die or get lung disease and one thing or another. But uh, this is what Gilgamesh does, and he gets the plant, and he brings it up. And and uh, then he goes uh, and finds a freshwater spring uh, after he after he comes up out of the sea. He finds a freshwater spring, puts the plant down, and goes to wash himself off, uh, wash off the salt water. And this snake comes by and grabs his plant and 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 eats it and and then sheds his skin and off the snake goes. Now this is kind of like in a way Her- Her- Hercules. Uh, goes for the the apples for the the, the golden apples in Hesperides, and of course you know those golden those golden apples are are uh, you know the like the fruit of the tree of life in the Bible, and so much of this of all this Gilgamesh and, and Noah and, and, and Hercules all of this shows up in the Bible, you know we have we have a lot of um, exchange in the Bible. What do you think about the the final labor? You know, do you think that uh, you know the, the, the uh, Gilgamesh bringing up the plant and losing it? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, um, I do. I, I I think that the the water snake, and this this is a little bit graphic, but it's fertilizing. So when it takes the plant, it's Kind of indicating that the the only immortality is through reproduction, in in that sense, as far as physical immortality. I, I hey, think that's, it's part yeah, of yeah, that 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 is a good solution to that to that uh, problem, and also um, Gilgamesh. Uh, you know, this whole idea of, of finding something something that for immortality. Uh, I think. The the immortality that that uh, the Gilgamesh eventually, you know, the type, the sort of immortality that he eventually achieves, is the immortality of of, of undying fame because he's been remembered for, uh, you know, for about six thousand years, and and uh, also too, you know, that that, that there's a similarity that the Gilgamesh story is not just it doesn't just influence Hercules, it influences. Uh, Ulysses, uh, the Odyssey, it influences, uh, it even influences Beowulf. You know, it, 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 it's, 
uh, Gilgamesh sort of sets the it sets the template for for uh, for great adventure stories. It's the original adventure story. I don't know. You know, and you might almost call it you might almost call it pulp fiction on clay tablets in Canada form. It uh, it's a it's a great adventure story. The labors of Hercules, you know, uh, and we're probably going to have to get into that next week. Where we're, you know, we got a lot of we're spending uh, a lot of time on Gilgamesh, which is good. But one of the things that I have not been able to find, and I know you you just you you you, you came up with that that article on uh, on Melkart uh, or reference to Melkart. I couldn't get it. I I, I couldn't pull it up. Uh, you know, they, I tried to join their their thing, but uh, somehow it didn't work. Did you find out anything anything uh, on Melkart on, in that article? So the the basic information I got on Melkart is we don't know a huge amount about Melkart. It seems that all the the centers of the cult of Hercules were all in heavy Phoenician trading cities which is kind of interesting. And uh, another thing about the cult of Melkart and um, Hercules is Strabo in his geography uh, says that the uh, Greeks got their knowledge of the stars from the Phoenicians. Yeah, well, that's Strabo. Uh, good. Well, at least we got a, we got a, we got a source there. Uh, I've heard, you know, I have I have read that before uh, several times. Although, you know, I don't recall Strabo being cited, but I'm sure Robert Graves probably did. One of the problems I have is my copy of of um, my copy of Graves' mythology, Greek mythology, is from the Folio Society, and these people. When they decided to publish uh, Graves' big magnum opus on Greek mythology, which is uh, which is an invaluable book, they decided to take out all of Graves' footnotes. Can you imagine that? And they here they published they published Robert they they they. They, they said, oh, and, and oh well, well, you know, when Graves was was uh, they they had some condescending remarks to to make about Graves, uh, Graves' analytic method, you know, that that his, uh, and they took out all his footnotes, and, and Graves' footnotes are are just a magnificent source of, of material, just like that, and and and, and I'm sure he, he somewhere in there he probably referred to Strabo, but anyway. Um, the one thing I have learned about uh, about Melkart was that, and we've discussed this before, that Melkart was the original template for Hercules, and Graves and, and everybody knows, everybody admits that 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 Melkart was the Phoenician Melkart, Baal Melkart was was the original Hercules, and uh, Tyre. That that the one with the two pillars, you know, uh, out front, the one that, that that was used that was copied for the Temple of Solomon, that temple had a huge diorama or cyclorama of the Circle of the Beasts and Melkart's, you know, Melkart's journey around this the the zodiac. They had this huge mural. Uh, which we, you know, or which we have tried to, you know, kind of replicate in our psychorama. Uh, the idea being that this this was 
Melkart Melkart represented the you know the solar hero, and and uh, which eventually of course uh, you know uh, became Hercules, but Alexander the Great wanted to visit the temple. And and I think Alexander wanted to, you know, he I think he wanted to destroy it uh, from the get go, and he just wanted an excuse. Uh, he, he he told he told he he parked his army across the across the uh, uh, you know the channel from from Tyre, which was an island, and and uh, and, and, he, and, he, and he asked the and he sent a message to the uh, to the king of Tyre, to Hiram, to let him come over and, and make a sacrifice, and he wanted to make a sacrifice in the temple uh, to Hercules, uh, 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 you know, Melkart. And uh, they they wrote back to him and told him, you know, you can't do that, but what we will do is we will come over to your, over across the channel, we'll build an altar on the beach, and, and you can make your sacrifice there and we'll help you. And, and of course, Alexander took that as a terrible insult, and that then he had all his troops to turn around and, and and become engineers, and they and they built a causeway over to to Tyre. This was almost like the Roman army, you know, with Masada, where they built that big that big siege tower to get to climb up to Masada, and and uh, uh, so Alexander built this causeway. And had his troops filling in the causeway, and then he marched over to Tyre, took the, took the town, uh, you know, uh, conquered the conquered the temple, and crucified five thousand uh, uh, devotees of Melkart, priests and lay priests and whatever, crucified them, five thousand of them, and then destroyed the temple. Now, so we don't know, and on the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were very reluctant to write things down. They were like the Druids. They didn't. They didn't like to write down their uh, their their mythological or their religious secrets. So we really don't know. And then maybe one of these days we'll dig it up. We'll dig up something like the Nagamati or something, and, we'll, and we will know. But right now we don't know. We we don't know uh, just what that that circle of the beasts was like. And what and, and and so we're we're kind of but we we can guess uh, and and so basically we have to we have to use the labors of Hercules that we have and there are so many and, and unfortunately there are different versions of the labors of Hercules now next week that's what we're going to do we're going to get into the labors of Hercules and analyze them uh, you know and and go around the labors of Hercules and I, I might add that Alice Bailey. <laughs> Did do a book called the Labors, uh, the Labors of, of Hercules, and she did a book in which she tried to interpret the Labors of Hercules according to the signs of the zodiac. And uh, you have it. I've looked at it, uh, and uh, I hate to say it, but 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 I'm kind of underwhelmed. Uh, I know Alice Bailey. A lot of people really like Alice Bailey, but unfortunately, Alice Bailey credits. Uh, this, this Tibetan spirit guide that she has, or, or had, and of course, uh, 
this this just immediately turns me off because I've had several Tibetan initiations, and I know their astrology has nothing whatsoever to do with Western astrology. Now, the, the Tibetan astrology is 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 in a is in a universe of its own. It, it it does not relate to our to our astrology, and so this idea that this Tibetan would would know all this stuff is is uh, uh, just really is kind of offensive. But and and also too, she's a Bailey is a is a is sidereal astrology, and so consequently she splits the signs. Have you noticed that when you went through her book? No, I, I have noticed that. The other thing that kind of bugs me is this turning Hercules into this Buddhist master, um, which is kind of the way she portrays him in the beginning of that book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's uh, as I say, the Buddhists. I don't believe in that. Well. Uh, Tibetan astrology is is not it, it is not all that Buddhist, although the Tibetans the Tibetans are, but but it, it's it's you know it's it's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, of Central Asian shamanism and and whatever in there um, in Tibetan astrology. But and, I I I am I, I, the Bailey book does not uh, does not really. Well, she may have some good ideas. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna naturally, but, but before we go into this next week, I'm gonna go through the whole Bailey book and see if I can find anything in there that that uh, that I do think is 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 good, and we'll discuss it. But uh, but the labors of Hercules, um, once they are laid, once they are uh, properly associated with the circle of the zodiac. They become a very, very important initiatic uh, system, and because, as you know, we said in the beginning, uh, they originally Hercules was a demigod, of course, and eventually became became immortalized uh, in the heavens and 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 after death and whatever. But uh, in 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 modern modern. Uh, Esoteric terms, the labors of Hercules represent the soul's journey through the wheel of the, of, of incarnations, and and uh, and so in this sense, it's very very important both both to know because because uh, in order to uh, you know in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been, and and uh, in this case. Uh, it, uh, the labors of Hercules become a kind of a map of the progress of the soul. And, and uh, um, by the way, I also mentioned that uh, that, that that Alice Bailey's disciple, uh, Alan Oaken, uh, he took all the labors. Of, he didn't agree with with Alice on this. He took all the labors of Hercules and put them into Scorpio, the whole bunch. And uh, so that uh, that uh, I don't think that works very well. That's it. I've been doing, you know I've been I've been doing a lot of talking here. So so we, and you want to you want to hold forth on on, uh, on on some of this on some of this uh, uh, this progression, especially as relation as relates to Gilgamesh. Yeah, I'll go ahead and throw some stuff out there. So you mentioned the pillars in the Temple of Melkart, and that those were in a lot of the the places where the Hercules cult was, any place where there are Phoenicians and they set up the temple, there were the two pillars. And one was gold 
and the other was Emerald, which to me is really um, an interesting thing to contemplate in this contest. Since the gold is usually solar and Emerald is associated with Earth, also associated with Wisdom through Thoth and Hermes. So that's, that, I think, is, is something that we might want to touch on. Yeah, and, and also those, those, those pillars, uh, apparently they were, used as, they were used as kind of a lighthouse because uh, you, could, you, you could see them. You know, if you, came in, if you came sailing in the tire at night, you could see them. They had, they had uh, lights on the top of them. Also, too, there are Phoenician pillars... Now they aren't necessarily the gold and the emerald ones, but there's there 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 are Phoenician pillars on on all these temples uh, of, of uh, the Carthaginians and and the Phoenician colonies uh, in Spain and all through you know uh, uh, Magna Graecia uh, the Mediterranean, and they call them chili, uh, silly silly uh, pillars, and essentially they they are they're sort of uh, uh, you know, kind of tulip-shaped uh, uh, pillars sitting on top of square of, of rectangular pedestals, and these rectangular pedestals had inscriptions on them. And one of these, these chili C L L I pillars, became kind of the Rosetta Stone of Phoenician. Are you, did, you, did you know about this? I did not know about this. This is very interesting. Oh yeah, this, this is fascinating. Uh, this this uh, nobody nobody really understood uh, the you know the meaning of the Phoenician letters. In fact, I'm wondering if if this had something that, to do with that Phoenician letters book that we uh, that we talk about, you know, Davies Davies and Zur, the Phoenician letters book. But these pillars were just they were discovered. Uh, back before World War One, uh, in the Mediterranean, somewhere uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, one of these pillars with a base, and it had an inscription, and it was like the Rosetta Stone. It was the Phoenician alphabet, and also uh, some other alphabets, I guess Greek, uh, and, and it gave the meaning of the Phoenician letters, and and uh, so that. Uh, which is which? Which is great. I just wish we had. Now that we have the Rosetta Stone of the of the of the, of the, of the, of the, of the Phoenician language, uh, unfortunately, we have very very little in the Phoenician language. You know, to uh, we have to we have to go to uh, Sancho Niato, and, and and that of course is in Greek, and 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 uh, Motius and what is in Greek. That that that's all of that is is, is in Greek, but. But uh, now that we now that we know, uh, you know what the Phoenician language was because of that uh, that chili uh, that chili uh, Rosetta Stone kind of thing. Uh, it'd be great if we had some of these uh, uh, some of these Phoenician writings, but we don't. Unfortunately, there are very very there are very few have survived, and the ones that have survived are mostly business. <laughs> mostly business. Well, the Venetians were great business people. That's true, but. Anyway, next week we'll have an analysis of the labors of Hercules as we, you know, as we, uh, as they have survived, and how the, each labor relates to the signs of the zodiac, and that'll be our subject next week. And and I, I want you to, 
uh, to call in uh, again and on that, and, and because especially, as I say, you 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 got through that Hellenic astrology course, and so you're you're uh, you're you're actually you know more more right now more more about it than I do, and so so call in next week and 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 we'll uh, we'll take on Hercules himself, okay? Sounds great. Yeah, thanks for calling in, and, and meanwhile, Ken, we'll uh, we'll see you next week for for the labors of Hercules. We'll pull the dog out of the cave and turn the underworld into the overworld. Okay, until then, good magic, and we'll see you next week.